Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, Calvary Quakertown. Welcome to you. And welcome to week five of Revelation. As we get started, I want to remind you of our basic goals, just so you don't think we're kind of missing the mark. First of all, we want to remove a little bit of the mystery and maybe some of the weirdness of the book. We're not into the really weird sections yet. That'll be coming in the next few weeks. Also, we want to look at some of the main themes. Yes, believe it or not, there are some main themes, and pretty much everybody agrees on what the main themes are. The disagreements come in some of the details. But our goals are not just to know what the main themes are. It's actually to live out those themes, because you'll discover, as I hope you already have, that basically, as we read through Revelation, it's a book about discipleship, calling us how to live in our relationship to God, our relationship to the church, and our relationship to the world, other people. I think you've heard of those three relationships before. And another goal is we're going to increase our love for our brothers and sisters, for other Christians who may disagree with us. Now, let me translate that for you. To increase our humility and decrease our arrogance. Because nothing like arrogance separates us from people, and nothing like humility puts us close and loving people. So as we increase our humility, recognizing, yeah, we don't have this all figured out, our love for others can increase because maybe they're right. Maybe we have some things right, and maybe they do. Well, this morning, we're going to look at chapter 3. We're going to pick up the last of the three churches, and we're going to look at sleepy, tough, and unaware. Now, I'm not talking about your husband when I say sleepy. Well, maybe I am. I sleepy, tough, and unaware. But you're going to discover that those three words pretty much describe the three churches in Revelation 3. One church is pretty sleepy, and they need to wake up. One church is tough. They're standing. They need to hang on. And the church is unaware. They're kind of deluded. They're not sure. They're, what they're thinking about themselves is incorrect. They need a, a perspective adjustment. They need to shape up. So we're going to work our way through as we do this. So if you have your Bibles... Turn to Revelation chapter 3. And before I read the first church, let me just remind you, everything flows from chapter 1, where Jesus is described. John sees this vision. He describes Jesus. And here's how the letters all flow. All right, here's a description of how the letters work. There's a description of Jesus at the beginning of every letter. And that description goes back to chapter 1. And so it's almost as if Jesus says, now remember who I am, and then he dictates the letter. And part of the description is Jesus is walking among the lampstands. The lampstands are describing churches. You ever realize? We have it pretty easy when it comes to lamps. I was thinking that this morning. I hate these days, kind of daylight getting shorter. I have to put the lamp on in the morning now. And I sat down, didn't think twice, hit the switch, sat down, ready to read. And as I sat there, I thought, boy... In the ancient world, turning the lamp on took a lot of work. First of all, you had to make sure there was oil. You had to make sure the wick was trimmed. You had to light the thing. That's the idea that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He's not just walking in the light. He's tending the lampstands. The lampstands don't light on their own. The Spirit of Jesus energizes the churches, right, with the oil of the Spirit. The light comes We've got a responsibility to make sure the wicks are trimmed, but Jesus is tending the lamps, doing the things that we cannot do. Each of the letters, well, not each of the letters, the general formula is that there's a commendation. And we're going to discover in chapter 3, 
Two of the churches in Revelation 3 do not get a commendation. They're not doing well enough to even get a data boy. The churches, not all of them, but most of them get correction. One of the churches in Revelation 3 gets no correction. They're doing things well enough that there's nothing really to correct or nothing that Jesus wants to call attention to. And then each of the letters ends with a challenge. But here's the interesting thing. Not just a challenge to the church, but a challenge to all of us, right? To each one, to everyone, to all that have ears. Let them hear. Not just to the church. The churches need to hear that message, but you and I need to hear that message too to make sure that we're not sleepy, tough, and unaware. Well, our first church is the church, the Sardis. So let's read that beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, and then we'll mention a few things about it. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in, my, in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold on, fat, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not, wake up. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Obviously, we don't have time to walk through all the details. Here's what we're going to do. I'll mention a couple things to you about each of the cities We'll mention a couple things about the letters, and you're going to discover Jesus is walking among the churches. He knows what's happening in the cities, and he knows what's happening in the churches. And part of the problem is the churches are being shaped by what's happening in the cities. There's a positive part to that. We need to relevantly live out the gospel, relevantly live out that good news in ways that connect with our surrounding context but not to be shaped in our priorities, not to be shaped in our values. And some of that's infiltrating these churches. So we'll talk about the city, talk about the church, and then the challenge. That's how we're going to go. So what's going on in Sardis? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Sardis. Sardis was virtually impregnable. They were built into these towering cliffs, and so enemies almost couldn't attack. If you're going to attack somebody, you want, you want to be in the high ground, not the low ground. And so if you, are, you have your fortress, right, you have your soldiers on the high ground in the towering cliffs, you just throw junk on people trying to get in, they can't get in. They were impregnable. And they thought they were safe and secure. And they were kind of sleepy because of that, right? Not only that, Sardis was one of the leading producers of gold in the ancient world. So think about that. Safe and secure and wealthy at the same time. Nothing like safety, security, and wealth will cause you to doze off, right? Isn't that how it happens? You know how it works, right? You have, a, you have a big afternoon meal, maybe today, before the game, a big afternoon meal, a great Sunday brunch. You're satisfied. Everything's fine. No aches and pains. Nobody bugging you. You go and you sit down, and before you know it, your eyelids begin to close, right? Or maybe you're listening to a message. The eyes begin to close, right? 
You're safe, you're secure, things, your, your belly is full, everything's fine, and you doze off. The game's getting boring, the Eagles are winning, the Philly, right, life is good. You doze off, safe, secure, things are looking fine. That's what's going on in Sardis. And they had reason for that, right? They're safe and secure, they live in an impregnable city, they're one of the leading producers of gold. They've got all the boxes checked. Life is great, safe, secure, we're good. And they're dozing off. You ever been a sound asleep at night? All of a sudden, there's a giant bang somewhere in the house. Within a fraction of a second, you are wide awake. You're, see, right? You're sitting up in bed telling your wife to go see what, what the noise was. <laughs> Right? Uh, you are, a, that's what Jesus is saying. In my mind, as Jesus is uh, dictating the verse, he's clapping his hands. Wake up! Wake up! They're dozing off because of their safety, security, and their wealth. Wake up! Here's the interesting thing about Sardis impregnable. Nobody can attack. Two times in their history, they were taken over and destroyed. And they both, both times they did it the same way. Those impregnable cliffs had crevices. And both occasions, an enemy soldier or two climbed up through the crevice. What did, what did the letter say? Like a thief in the night. Got inside, opened the city gates, and let the enemy soldiers in. Two times. What does Jesus say? If you continue to doze off, you continue to be sleepy, I will come like a thief. You'll be Now, that metaphor is sometimes used to refer to the second coming. It's not used to refer to second coming here. This is not Jesus coming again. This is Jesus coming in judgment on the church. If you continue to doze off, if you're safe and secure in your own mind, everything you've got life licked, be careful. I'll come like a thief and I'll judge your church. I'll take you out. Wow. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. What's the challenge? Wake up. Did you notice in the letter, they're not just feeling safe and secure in their impregnable fortress with one of the leading you know, producers of gold. They're also living on their reputation. Did you see that? Their history was great. They're resting on their history, which was great safe and secure in their impregnable fortress with all the wealth they need, Jesus says, you've got a lot to trust in that may cause you to doze off. Huh. Does that sound like you? That sound like Calvary Church? Resting on a reputation, safe and secure, having all these things, boxes checked. Wake up, wake up. I'll come, and this coming you may not like. That's the first church. Notice, no commendation. No pat on the back for the church at Sardis. Only challenge, only correction. Next church is the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, beginning in verse 7, right? These are the words of him who, who is holy and true and who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Philadelphia, located between New York City and Washington, D.C., about two million people between the Delaware and... Oh, that's the wrong Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is kind of an interesting place. And its founder cared so much for his younger brother that he named the city the city of brotherly love. That's where Philadelphia gets its name. Now, I would never name a city that my brother and I founded the city of brotherly love. And I'm guessing if you have a brother, you wouldn't name that city either. But these two guys must have had a really unique relationship because they named the city after their affection, concern, admiration for each other. The city of brotherly love. Now, it was a city that, in this whole area, but this city in particular, plagued by earthquakes, which makes it pretty interesting. Jesus says in the letter, I will make you a pillar, right? They knew what it was like to have the earth shake and pillars fall. Jesus says, I'm going to make you like a pillar that stands in the midst of a world that's shaking, you will be a pillar that stands. Notice in the letter to Philadelphia, no correction. No correction. All commendation. We prayed earlier and we sang about amazing grace. There's a lot of grace in that. The uh, Christians, the church in Philadelphia was experiencing lots of persecution. You feel that, right? Where he talks about the synagogue of Satan. Now that doesn't mean they had some kind of really wretched synagogue. Here's what that meant. A little first century history for you. Um, lots of gods were worshipped in the first century, right? Rome had a big pantheon of gods, right? Lots of Greek gods, lots of Roman gods. No problem in worshipping a lot of gods from the government's perspective. The Jews only worshipped one god. But... The Jews in the first century got a pass for not worshiping all the gods. The Jews got a pass for not worshiping the emperor. So Christianity in its beginnings was looked at kind of a subset of Judaism. And so early on, the Christians are kind of getting a little bit of a pass too. But as time rolls on, the Jews begin to say to the Romans, they're not really Jews. They began to push the Christians out of the Jewish circle that was getting the pass. So now, not only are the Jews pushing them out, the Romans are persecuting them. Working together, right? First century Judaism, Rome, right? The work. Isn't that interesting? That's the same combination that executed Jesus. The Jews couldn't do it on their own. What did they do? They brought Jesus before the Roman authorities. Here we see the same thing played out in Asia Minor. The Jews who were getting the pass, pushing the Christians out. No, so the Romans will actually do the persecution. 
And in these churches, this part of Asia Minor, what are they doing? The Jews are pushing them out. And what does Jesus say? Now, when he says synagogue of Satan, he doesn't mean that they're worse off than everybody. Here's what it means. The Jews prided themselves in having access to God. So what does the letter say, right? Access to God. The Jews said, through our formula, through our sacrifices, now in the synagogue, through what we teach, through what we preach and believe, we have access to God. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, they're wrong. Access to God does not come through them. Access to God comes through me. And I, the door to God, right, the door, the, the door of access, I have opened that door before you. And one day all will know that access to God is through me, not through ritual, not through um, performance of certain rites. Access comes through me. I've opened a door. Um, some would say that's a door to mission, evangelism. I kind of think in the context, what's going on, it's a door of access. And Jesus is saying, you guys have the access. Now, um, I semi-hesitate to do, I'm going to do it anyway, but I semi-hesitate to do this. But uh, since one of our goals is to increase humility and to get us kind of anchored on the absolutes, not kind of majoring on peripheral things and on preferences and convictions. Let me show you in this letter one of the verses in the Bible and in Revelation that has, is often used to drive a wedge in what Christians believe. So here's verse 10. Here's a wedge. So this is like, if you like technical terms, this is a hermeneutical excursus. If you don't, this is, a, this is an assignment in humility, all right? Here's what the verse says. It goes to the letter of Philadelphia. Since you have kept my command and endure patiently, here it is, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, um, think, you, you can check out if you're not interested in this, but if, if you need a humility assignment, here it is. This is one of the key verses this is like one of the touchstone verses in Revelation, not just for futurists, but for those who claim Jesus will rapture the church. There it is. See what it says? I will keep you, Jesus says, from the hour of trial, from the hour of tribulation. I will keep you from it. Now, the word rapture does not appear in Revelation, but if you're of that particular school, you know, the Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins school, if you're of that school, this becomes a key verse in that belief system. And they say, okay, before we get to all that stuff in seals and trumpets and bowls, here Jesus comes to take the church out. He's removing the church, right? Um, interestingly, though, there are a couple ways to understand keep from. That can be through escape. That can be through removal. It can be, right? So maybe they're right. But it can also be through protection. Is it extraction or is it protection? It all comes down to how you're going to define that particular term. Interestingly, I'm guessing most of you would probably fall into that, so here's your humility assignment. The only place in the Bible 
that has a clear reference connected to I will keep you from is Jesus' prayer in John 17. Um, Here's what Jesus says in John 17. Same word, same language, right? John wrote gospel. We believe John wrote revelation. Here's the same language. Notice what Jesus says. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Huh, it's kind of interesting. Because a school of thought saying, when you get to Revelation 3, Church of Philadelphia, he's going to take them out. Jesus prays in John 17, I'm not going to take them out. But that you will protect them from. Now look, you can believe any side of that. My goal is not to convince you of one side or the other. My goal is to convince you that we better walk lightly on our particular viewpoint of how that's playing out because we live and die on the absolutes, not on convictions, not on preferences, and we love our brothers and sisters who are different on the convictions and different on the preferences. And there's too much division and too much hostility and name-calling and looking down arrogant noses at each other for people when it comes down to it. They're defining one word in slightly two different ways, and the word can be defined either way. Well, you know what? Absolutes are things that are clearly and regularly taught. This isn't one. All right? So we finished with our hermeneutical excursus? All right. What does Jesus say to the church at Philadelphia where there's no correction, only commendation? Hang on. Hang in. Um, Hold on to what you have. I am with you, walking among the lampstands. I know what's going on. I am keeping your lamp trimmed. I am providing my spirit to fill it with oil. I am keeping the wick trimmed. And in that hostile, dark situation where you're being persecuted, you can light up with the light of the gospel. And in the darkest of dark, the brightest light can be seen. You guys hold on. Hold on and light up. Well, we all need that message, right? Hold on. Don't give up. When circumstances are difficult, when things turn the wrong way, when winds begin to be in your face rather than at your back, hold on. Don't change course. If you're following Jesus, you just keep going. He's with you. He's trimming the lamp, empowering you and energizing you through his spirit to hold on and keep going. We got one more church, the church in Laodicea. Now, let me read through this. Uh, This is kind of the unaware church, right? The deluded church is probably a more accurate term. Uh, So follow along and let's read about Laodicea. You'll know a lot about the city from what the letter says. Here's what Jesus says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you were neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How's that for a description, right? It it, it could be the sign over their church. We're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Come join us. Uh, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they, will, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea. The first thing we learn about Laodicea in the description, and you can check this, you can read it online if you want. Go to Wikipedia, read about ancient Laodicea. Here's what you learn. The water was nasty. That's what you need to know. Here's why. Hot water, there were hot springs in Heropolis. Cold water in Colossae. Problem, Laodicea was in between those two. How were they going to get the hot water? Well, they brought the hot water through aqueducts, and they didn't have heaters along the way. So by the time the hot water from the springs in Heropolis, the hot springs, by the time it made it to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. I don't know about you. I don't like lukewarm in my hot tub. I like my hot tub at a high temperature. That it, you know, it hurts to get in a little bit. Um, they had lukewarm water in the hot tub. Not only that, the cold water from Colossae, by the time it traveled through the aqueducts to get to Laodicea City, it was lukewarm too. If there's anything worse than a lukewarm hot tub, it's a lukewarm drink of water when you're really thirsty. That's like drinking warm beer as the only beer you can drink, right? Everything's Now, there are some people that want to say, oh, Jesus says, I wish you were hot. And No, Jesus is saying, both of those are good. Hot water brings health, right? There's a medicinal quality to it. Cold water is refreshing. You guys are neither. You're not hot that brings healing. You're not cold that brings refreshment. You're lukewarm that nauseates people and me. You don't want that report from Jesus. Like I'm, I'm just saying, right? That, 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 that is not a good report. Not just that. Laodicea was wealthy. Did you notice that? Now, here's, a, here's an interesting thing from history. Laodicea, remember I told you a lot of earthquakes. Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake, like 60 AD, somewhere in that ballpark. Now, I'm glad you're sitting down. You won't believe this, right? They refused federal funds to rebuild their city. Rome offered funds. They, we don't need your money. We can't even get a sports team to pay for their stadium in our cities. They refused the money. They, we have enough. We don't need your money. They rebuilt their own city without funds from Rome. They had nasty water, but boy, they had a lot of money. Not just that, they had like the best wool. It was a black wool, and it was kind of shiny, kind of like the, the denim of the first century, right? Be, before Levi's made the, at, at the church in Laodicea, they made jeans. And everybody around the Mediterranean loved their jeans. Um, oh, not just that, they had a medical school that majored in ophthalmological cures, they had a salve for your eyes that kind of brought relief and bring, that brought healing. And people from all over the known world would come there. And what does Jesus say? You think you're rich because you rebuilt your city. You're poor. You think you're well-clothed because of your textile industry. You're naked. You think you see and you can cure yourselves because you have a medical eye hospital. You're blind. You're pitiful. And you're wretched. Remember I said they're unaware? 
Do you ever meet somebody or do you know anybody that's like completely, un- like, like they're like oblivious. They have no idea how they're coming across. They think they're wise, most people laugh at them. They think they're funny, most people roll their eyes. They think they're clever, nobody wants to be with them, right? Do you know people like that? This church is deluded. This church is completely unaware. They think they're rich. Their eyesight is perfect. They think they've got the best clothing. Jesus says, you're deluded. You're not rich. In fact, you're not even middle class. You're poor. You think you have the best clothing. You're naked. You think you have all these advantages. You have nothing. Because all you have are temporal, external things that make your life comfortable. But in light of eternity and in light of the perspective from heaven, you have nothing. You need to come and buy, get white, durable, eternally durable clothing from me. Come to me, recognize you're blind, and I'll give you sight. Come to me acknowledging your poverty, not earthly poverty. Come acknowledging your spiritual poverty, and I will make you rich. Well, it's easy in our culture to uh, kind of be like the Laodicea in church, isn't it? In fact, um, that's part of the reason that some interpreters say, uh, we're living in the age of the Laodicean church, right? Yeah, eh, I could see that. If you live in America, if you live in sub-Saharan Africa, you live in some parts of South America, you would never say, oh, we live in the age of the Laodicean church. I mean, that's kind of an American perspective, right? So I don't think we can take the churches and draw up ages, but I know based on how each of the letters ends, Jesus is calling us to uh, take inventory. Do you feel safe and secure? Do you feel like you have life licked? Do you have everything you need? Maybe you need to wake up. You look around at circumstances, and they're really tough. You wonder if you're all alone and God left you somehow. No. Hang on. Jesus is walking among the lampstands, but not just among the lampstands. Through his spirit, he's walking around inside our lives. You think you have life looked, life licked by looking at your day timer, looking at your job, your resume, your bank account, your 401. Look at all those things. You feel pretty good. Jesus would say, open your eyes. Lift your eyes above the temporal. Lift your eyes above the external. Lift your eyes to a picture of heaven and a picture of eternity and a picture through me. Come to me recognizing you have nothing. And I will give you my everything. But if you think you come with everything, you just live with that. You get nothing from me. Shape up. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wake up. Hang on. Shape up. These past couple of weeks, I sat at my desk a few times. And I said uh, to myself, I'm telling you now. What would Jesus write if he was going to write a letter to Calvary Church? I don't know. I don't know. 
So this is not, I'm not quoting him, all right? I think I can tell you what he wouldn't say. Jesus would not say, your biggest need is more money, you need to go get some. He wouldn't say that. He wouldn't say, your biggest need is for more people, you need to have more events to get people. I don't think he'd say that. I don't think he would say, I don't think he would say, we need more hymns, that's what we need. I don't think he'd say that. I don't think he would say, we need more rocking choruses, that's what we need. We need more drums and bass, that's what we need here. He wouldn't say that. I think based on all seven letters in Revelation chapter one, I think he would say this. Calvary Church, your real need is to catch a glimpse of who I am and what I've done. And when you do that, everything else will fall into place. Funny, our definition of worship is seeing him accurately, responding appropriately. Don't spend as much time on the responding appropriately, learning what that looks like. Spend time catching a glimpse of who he is, what he's done. The appropriate response will then come naturally. Interestingly, chapters four and five are all about catching a glimpse of God and Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at worship and our definition from the next two chapters of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for for this book. Forgive us at times for uh, spending more time arguing our perspective than looking for you in its pages. Forgive us for spending more time loading our mental gun as we go through the details rather than falling before Jesus and recognizing who he is and what he's done. Lord, help us to uh, take seriously the end of each letter. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wake up. Hang on. Shape up. Amen.